Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kadra. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Uh, This is part two of a three-part series. So if you missed it, last week I released episode eight. That was part one. We are talking about the I-45 murders. And last week I covered the story of the 11. So if you missed that, be sure to go back and listen to that. That covered a lot of murders that took place off of Highway 45 in the 1970s. Today is part two which will cover some other murders that took place off of Highway 45 in the 80s through the early 90s. If you like what you've been hearing on the podcast, be sure to leave a five-star review on whatever platform you've been listening on. It's super easy. Just click the star rating option when you pull up the podcast. And if you are listening on Apple or Stitcher and you want to type a review, I believe you can do that on both of those platforms. So that's great. I would love if you did that. It would mean the world to me. Leaving a review really helps the podcast by boosting it up the algorithms, allowing me to get these stories to more people. Please do that if you haven't. Also, be sure to follow the podcast so you know when new episodes have been released. And if you want me to do a story that you're interested in, or you have a story to tell me that you want me to read on the podcast, email me, perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. It could be anything, creepy, mysterious, true crime stories, whatever you want to share. You can also follow me on Instagram at perplexitymysterypodcast. Also, just wanted to quickly say hello, because... We have some new Perplexity listeners around the world. Hello to all my beautiful listeners in the UK, Colombia, and the Netherlands. That is so freaking cool, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I love you for being here. Perplexity now has eight countries listening. That is incredible. Thank you guys so, so much. So to make sure that we have time to dive right into this story... The sources for today's episode are all going to be listed in the show notes, so check that out if you want to learn more. This episode contains disturbing events, including sexual assault, violence, murder, and animal abuse. Listener discretion is advised for listeners below the age of 13. All right. In the state of Texas in the small town of League City, from 1984 to 1991, the bodies of four women were discovered in the same 25-acre field located off of Calder Road. This field would later become known as the Texas Killing Fields. League City is about five hours from Dallas, Texas. It's also about 30 to 40 minutes southeast of Houston. And as you drive down Highway 45 towards League City, you'll drive through 11 different jurisdictions. So back during this time period, the 80s, police didn't share information from one jurisdiction to the other. As you drive down I-45 from Houston to Galveston, you'll also see a lot of small towns, empty fields, bayous, retention ponds, petrochemical plants, old oil fields, and marshes. So this area, especially back then, was very remote, making it an easy place to hide a body. If you listened to part one, League City is kind of between Webster, Texas, and Dickinson, where some of the murders in the 70s took place. Nowadays, League City has about 116,000 people But back in the 80s, there were only about 16,500 people living there, so it was a fairly small town. Calder Road is located just off of I-45. It's like a few minutes drive from the highway. And this is also an area where you could easily dump a body, jump right back on the highway, and disappear. This is also a time period where we didn't have surveillance cameras everywhere, we didn't have license plate readers, and DNA wasn't around yet. They like the science for it. The Calder Road fields were owned by a petrochemical company, and the vast majority of the fields on this road were completely empty, except for one horse trail riding business. 
Calder was really just a long and desolate dirt road. Before we get into the murders and disappearances, I did want to say there is an incredible three-part docuseries on Netflix. It's called Crime Scene, The Texas Killing Fields, and it came out in 2022. I highly recommend it. It talks about all of these cases, and it also covers some things that we're going to be talking about in part three. They uh, talk about the 11 briefly as well in the first episode, so definitely check that out if you are interested in the I-45 murders. So our story begins on April 6th, 1984. A couple that owned a house in the 3000 block off Calder Road was relaxing at home while their young child was playing outside in the yard. Their dog ran off into the woods and a little while later, the dog came back with something round in its mouth. They thought the dog had maybe found a ball out there. So they went to check it out and realized that in the dog's mouth was a human skull. They went into the woods and that's when they found a human skeleton. Two years later, on February 2nd, 1986, two boys were riding their bicycles on Calder Road when they found a woman's skeleton just 60 feet from where the first skeleton had been found. While police are investigating and examining the evidence for the second body, they find a third set of remains just 25 yards away. So let's talk about these disappearances. There was a woman named Heidi Fye, and Heidi was born in 1958 to Joe and Janie Villarreal. Her family affectionately called her Heidi, and Heidi was known as a bright and bubbly personality, the light of the room. She worked at a bar called the Texas Moon as a cocktail waitress. And when Heidi was just 25 years old, she decided she wanted to move closer to her family. So in October of 83, Heidi was on her way to Houston, where her mom lived. She was going to be moving her small trailer into her mother's backyard. She planned to move there with her boyfriend and save up money for her future. So on October 7th, 1983, Heidi walked to a payphone outside of a convenience store to make a phone call. And this was verified by eyewitnesses, including the convenience store clerk. But she never showed up in Houston. So her family became concerned and they reported the disappearance to police, but police assured them that she was likely a runaway and that she would return and just basically not to worry about it. So this mentality is going to come up several times in these disappearances. And unfortunately, it seems to be a very common theme with police, especially in like the 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, But Heidi's father on the other hand, was not going to just sit back and do nothing. The police even told them not to go to the media, not to put out posters. And Heidi's family also said that Heidi was portrayed really poorly in the media. She was labeled as a hitchhiker, a runaway, a drug addict, and a cocktail waitress, which had like a negative connotation back then. But like I said, Heidi's father wasn't just going to sit back and not do anything. So He went out and he searched every single day for her. He also interviewed people in nightclubs, driving across town often. He would bring notebooks with him and take notes at the interviews. And then he would drive home and he would have this tape recorder where he would record himself and keep track of all of his findings. Sometimes even two or three times a day, he would get on this tape recorder and he would describe people that he talked to, He would write down names and phone numbers, you know, doing what the police should be doing. Now, I will say later, these tapes did get entered into evidence by the police, but it took a long time. There were several people close to Heidi that his father considered to be persons of interest. So he brought these names to the police, but Heidi's father didn't feel like he was really getting the response from the police that he was hoping for. Six months after Heidi went missing, her remains were found off Calder Road in the field on April 6th, 1984. 
the skull that the couple's dog had found was later identified to be Heidi's through dental records. The rest of Heidi's remains were found underneath a tree. She was in an advanced state of decomposition and she was laying on her back. A lot of the remains had also been spread around by animals, so it was difficult to determine a cause of death or what the killer's signature may have been. The suspected cause of death was trauma because Heidi's ribs had been severely broken. And Calder Road was only about four or five miles away from the bar that Heidi worked at, the Texas Moon. It wasn't until the discovery of her remains, though, that Heidi's case seemed to get some real attention from the police. And the police force ended up having multiple suspects, but none of them panned out and there wasn't enough evidence to charge anyone. So the second disappearance we're going to talk about was Laura Miller. Laura Miller was 16 years old at the time that she disappeared, just a kid. She and her family had just moved to League City from Dickinson, and Laura loved music like Fleetwood Mac, Linda Ronstadt. She was very social. She was popular. She had a lot of friends. But Laura had been struggling in school, and she was getting in a little bit of trouble. She was experimenting like a lot of teenagers do. Uh, But her parents were concerned, so they decided to pull her out of school in Dickinson and move to League City. And they were hoping that this would be like a fresh start for her. Laura had a boyfriend named Vernon. And she, like all high schoolers, loved her boyfriend, talked to him all the time, thought about him all the time. So when they're in the process of moving to their house and unpacking, they don't have a phone set up yet. So this is on September 10th, 1984, which is just 11 months after Heidi disappeared and five months after her remains had been found. Laura wants to really call her boyfriend and talk to him. And Laura Miller's father, Tim, recalls that as he was walking out the door at about 6.45 a.m. that morning, Laura asked if it was okay if her boyfriend Vernon came over that night. Tim agreed. Laura couldn't call him because, again, their phone wasn't set up yet at the house, and this was the 80s. So Laura's mom had come home for lunch later that day, and Laura asked her mom if she would drive her to a payphone so that she could call Vernon. Laura's mom was a little bit back and forth on if she wanted to let her do this. I'm not sure if it was for safety reasons or just because Laura's mom had to get back to work soon. But she did eventually agree. She takes her to the nearest payphone, which was in a convenience store parking lot. Police would later find out this was the same payphone that Heidi Fye used before she disappeared. So Laura calls Vernon. She's talking on the phone with him. They're catching up. And Laura's mom's sitting in the parking lot waiting. And she waits for several minutes, hoping that she could still have time to drive Laura back to the house. But Laura, of course, wants to keep talking to Vernon for as long as she can. So she waves off her mom and tells her not to worry. And she basically said that she was just going to walk home. It was less than half a mile away from their house. So Laura's mom reluctantly agrees and leaves and drives to work. So later in the day, when Tim and his wife both got home from work, they hear a knock on the door. And it's Laura's boyfriend, Vernon. Tim was expecting to see Vernon and Laura together. So Tim immediately asks where Laura is. And Vernon says he hasn't talked to her or seen her. And the last time he talked to her was earlier that afternoon on the phone. So Laura's parents immediately begin to panic because Laura also had some health issues. She had a seizure disorder and she had to take her medication, Dilantin, twice a day for seizure prevention. She did not have her medication with her. It was sitting at home in its bottle. So her parents worry that she hasn't come home. She must have had a seizure when she was walking home. Now she's probably ended up in some hospital. Maybe she's listed as a Jane Doe at the hospital. So Tim and his wife went to local hospitals to search for her, but they had no luck. So then they went to the police and reported her missing. But again, the police considered Laura a runaway. 
they assured Tim and his wife to go home and to not worry and that Laura would be calling them soon. Tim urged the police to take this seriously, specifically because of Laura's medical issues. In the Texas Killing Fields documentary, Tim is in it extensively and he recalls the police officer saying to him, quote, Laura is very streetwise and she can get her medication anywhere. <laughs> wow. Tim's father, like Heidi Fye's father, was not just going to sit on his hands and he did a lot of investigating of his own and he eventually finds out about the murder of Heidi Fye, including the similarities in her and his daughter's cases like how they both disappeared in the same place. And uh, he takes these findings to the police. Like Tim Miller and his wife, Heidi Fye's parents were also being urged by police to not communicate with the Millers. Laura had still not been found as time passes, so Tim starts to urge the police to search the field where Heidi Fye's body had been found. And according to Tim, the police flat out refused to do this. They didn't even entertain the idea. Tim Miller even pleaded for the police to give him the location and that he would go out there himself. But the police, again, refused to give him the location. And they said that it was private property and it's all fenced in, so you can't get in there. Because this area of League City was plagued with empty, desolate fields, Tim didn't even know where to start. On February 2nd, 1986, 17 months after Laura Miller went missing, there are two boys riding their bikes on Calder Road, and they pass an area with a lot of debris, and they smell a foul odor. As the boys approach the area, which was waist-high with grass and brush, they find the decomposed remains of a female lying under a tree on her back. The medical examiner's office estimated the remains were of a female between the ages of 20 to 30 years old. She had a large gap between her front teeth and they named her Jane Doe. As the police expanded their search, they found the body of another female, again, lying under a tree on her back. The Jane Doe's cause of death, the second one they found, uh, was determined later to be from a gunshot wound. She had been shot with a 22 caliber handgun and the bullet was found lodged in her spine. So the third body they found, you know, at the same time as the second one was identified with dental records and it was determined to be none other than Laura Miller. There was also a blue plaid Western shirt that was found near Laura's body and this was taken into evidence. They estimated that Laura had been there for many months, and because Laura had been there for so long, and because this was a small town, we didn't have a lot of great forensics back then, there was very little evidence, and it was very difficult to determine cause of death. Tim Miller was understandably beside himself because he had been urging the police to search there for months, and he couldn't help but wonder if things for the investigation could have gone any different if they would have listened to him sooner, like maybe there would have been more forensic evidence. Tim continued to work tirelessly on Laura's case, and it's so heartbreaking to watch because in the documentary, he's like in his mid-70s at that point, and he still is investigating Laura's murder. So a little bit of a spoiler there, guys, but like he, he never stopped and he says in the documentary that he won't stop till his dying breath. Laura's case consumed his life so much that his marriage became very strained and he ended up getting a divorce. There were also many nights that Tim would get in his truck and he would drive out to the Texas killing fields and he would bring his 357 Magnum gun and a six pack of beer and he would just sit out there all night waiting and hoping for his daughter's killer to return. He even fired his gun six times into the air one night, hoping that someone would call the police, that help would come, but no one ever came. On September 8th, 1991, a couple was riding out on a horse 
they were off Calder Road and they noticed a foul odor. They called the police and another decomposing body of a female was found underneath a tree lying on her back. This victim was temporarily labeled as Janet Doe to discriminate her from the other unidentified victim that they had labeled as uh, Jane Doe. They estimated that Janet Doe was between 30 and 50 years of age. Now the police of Lee City have four female victims, two that are unidentified, and the bodies had been found from 1983 to 1991 with the first three bodies being discovered within a period of two years and the fourth being found about five years later. All the victims were found very close together, again, in the same field. So this seemed to be the work of a serial killer. Jane and Janet Doe were not able to be identified at that time because they didn't match with any missing persons cases in the area. Tim Miller also said he got the impression that Jane and Janet Doe were seen more like drifters. So again, they weren't getting portrayed well in the media and didn't seem to be seen as valued by the police. League City also had very few resources and they had a very small police department. If I remember correctly, they only had about seven police officers on their force. So it was very small. By 1991, while DNA testing was available, they didn't have anything to test because records were not kept very well by the League City Police. A number of techniques were tried to identify Jane and Janet Doe, including reconstructed clay head models using the victim's skulls. The FBI also became involved in this case, and they helped in building a behavioral profile of who they thought the killer was. So their profile included a lot of interesting information, including that the killer likely lived close by, that he had a superior attitude, he had troubled relationships with women, and he likely kept newspaper clippings of the murders. So this profile helps them narrow down their suspect pool further, and in many ways, their profile seemed familiar to a man that lived on Calder Road. Not only this, but the man also owned the horseback trail riding fields in this area. So this was a man named Robert William Abel, and he was a former NASA engineer. So he lived just right there. And the property that he owned in the 90s was next to an abandoned oil field, the same field where all four bodies had been found. Uh, Robert Abel also had a pretty interesting history, a violent history to be more specific, uh, including animal abuse and assaulting women. He had several ex-wives and one ex-wife said that Robert had threatened to kill her once because she wouldn't have sex with him. His ex-wives also said that he used to beat his horses, and when one of the horses would die, he would just leave the horse out in the field to rot, just like the girls that were left in the killing field. He also often inserted himself in the investigation, so many people became convinced that he was responsible, including Tim Miller, Laura Miller's father. So Tim pushed the police very hard to do more excavations on Abel's land and to interrogate him harder. Tim even got his own army of volunteers to go out to Abel's property and dig themselves. He borrowed a backhoe from someone and someone brought a group of cadaver dogs and they just started digging up on this guy's property. But they eventually found a woman's purse and a woman's clothes. So they talk about this briefly in the docuseries and they don't really mention any of it. Like they don't really mention anything else about it. Uh, they said Tim thought that they might belong to another victim, but I never heard anything else about the clothes after that. But police eventually search Abel's home. They do find some interesting things, including 
newspaper clippings about the murders. So remember the profile from earlier. They also found several human teeth with gold crowns and a 22 caliber handgun, which was the same kind of gun used to kill one of the unidentified victims. But due to police neglect, they were not able to match the bullet with the gun. So eventually Tim becomes so angry and so sure that Abel was the killer and he started to harass Abel and he would call him multiple times a day, leaving a lot of threatening voicemails and Abel gets scared. So he had to get a protective order against Tim Miller. Years go by and eventually Abel became tired of living his life in fear he shut down his trail riding business and he moved to another country or sorry, excuse me. (laughs) He moved to another County, not country. But as time passed, Tim Miller realized he had gone too far. He called Abel and apologized. Tim Miller recalls him and Abel crying together, but Abel continued to be a suspect in the murders. And I guess it was too much for him to bear. Because in 2005, Abel got in his golf cart and drove it up to some of the train tracks and let a train hit him. We obviously don't know for sure if this was an accident, but many people believe he committed suicide. So that's the first suspect, but we also need to talk about another guy. So this is a man named Clyde Hedrick. Clyde was from Florida, but he moved to Houston, Texas in the 70s, or the Houston area, specifically to Dickinson, Texas. Clyde worked in construction. He was a roofer, and he worked for a contractor on Calder Road. He was often known to dispose of construction materials on Calder Road. He also liked to go country dancing, and he would frequent many bars including the Texas Moon, where Heidi Fye worked as a cocktail waitress. He would go to dancing contests, and he was a pretty good dancer. He would often win the contests, and he kind of saw himself as a ladies' man. He was often seen wearing a black cowboy hat. He also knew some of the Calder Road victims. He also had a violent history. He was a known abuser of women. And one of the women he dated in the mid to late 80s, he had met after a night of dancing at a bar. So once they started dating, this woman's ex-husband actually investigated Clyde and he found out he had a pretty significant criminal history. He had a charge for abuse of a corpse. And we will talk about that, but yeah. So, so far it's not looking great. Uh, so this woman, though, she kept Clyde around, they kept dating, and eventually they got married. And this woman already had a younger daughter from a previous marriage named Marla. And Marla is in the docuseries as an adult. She talks extensively about her memory of Clyde. Her account of everything is so so telling and so incredible to watch like seriously go watch it one of the stories that marlo recounts is a time when she was about 12 or 13 years old and clyde had taken her and her brother to a community pool to go swimming her brother was on the opposite end of the pool and clyde was near marla and he told her to go underwater because he had to show her something. So she was like, uh, yeah, sure. Okay. And she went under the water and Clyde pulled his swim trunks down and exposed himself to her. So Marla freaks out and runs back to the apartment and her brother ran after her. Marla told her mother what happened. Marla's mother and Clyde got into a fight about it, but Clyde denied it. According to Marla, her mother believed Clyde. So Marla constantly felt unsafe. She always felt, even in her own home, that someone was watching her all the time. 
even when she was in her own bedroom. Marla's mother and Clyde would fight all the time. They were off and on. Marla's mother would kick Clyde out, but she would always eventually let him back in. So, by the way, the reason that I keep saying mother and not saying her name is because they don't mention her name at all in the docuseries. And I think that's intentional. They like blurred her face out of photos and stuff. So I didn't go digging for this woman's name. So we're just going to refer to her as Marla's mother. Anyway, Marla also recalled one time when Clyde came back to the trailer, he was covered in blood and had a bloody knife. He told Marla's mother, quote, I did it again. So it seems like this town is just filled with some fabulous folks. Marla also talked about how in 1997, her mother eventually left Clyde. And at that point, Marla had moved out on her own. And Marla's mother came to see her. And she said she wanted to show Marla what Clyde had done. So Marla's uncle and her mom and Marla go down to the trailer in Galveston where Marla's mom and Clyde had been living. And when they went inside, they found that the trailer was absolutely destroyed. And then Marla's mother pointed out a spot on the wall and there's a hole in the wall. This is when Marla's mother tells Marla, Clyde used to look through this hole into Marla's bedroom. So Marla's uncle takes photos of the trailer, including the hole in the wall, and together they all go to the Galveston Police Department to file a police report. According to Marla, one man in the police office took her statement and then sent her on her way. Clyde was never arrested. And in the docuseries, Marla is also quoted saying, I just hate saying his name. You have no idea what it does. So keep in mind, Clyde lived in Dickinson, and that's where Laura Miller lived with her family before moving to League City. Laura Miller's house in Dickinson was also on the same street as Clyde Hedrick's house. One of Laura's friends would later say that Laura was creeped out by Clyde, and when Laura and this friend would go on walks together, they would purposefully go a long way to avoid his house because Laura was scared of him. Tim Miller also recalled a time that he's pretty sure he met Clyde when he loaned him a tire for his truck. So it's believed that Clyde Hedrick was responsible for the murder of another woman named Ellen Beeson. Ellen Beeson was from Friendswood, Texas, not far away. Ellen was in her 20s and she had a good job. She enjoyed going out with her friends and going dancing. On the night, or one night, the date wasn't specific, but on one night in July of 1984, three months before Laura Miller disappeared, Ellen Beeson was out dancing with a friend named Candy when she was introduced to a man named Clyde Hedrick. The bar that they went out dancing to, you might ask? The Texas Moon. And it sounds like Candy was a mutual friend of Ellen and Clyde and that she had introduced them, but... Anyway, Clyde and Ellen seemed to hit it off, and they spent the night dancing together. But when Ellen Beeson didn't show up for work the next day, her friends and family became concerned, and they contacted the authorities. Ellen Beeson's friend, Candy, also started to question Clyde and ask if he knew where she was because he was the last person to have seen her. Clyde claimed that he saw Ellen leave in a truck with some friends. But weeks go by, and Ellen is still nowhere to be found. So Candy continued to ask Clyde where Ellen was. And not before long, weeks became months. And then six months went by. Candy finally just lays into Clyde, and she's like, you know, incessantly asking, where is she, where is she, where is she? And Clyde gets so fed up that finally he says, okay, fine, I'll show you where she is. Which I feel like at that point, I would have been like, nah, I, that's okay, I'm good. <laughs> like, do not go anywhere with that man. What are you doing? But she, she went with him. 
And so he drives Candy to this offbeat dirt road near Galveston Island. And eventually they go into this field and there's a bunch of garbage, some old tires, an old sofa. Clyde moves these old tires and there underneath is a body. And I really want to know what happened after that. Like, was Candy just like, okay, you can take me home now? Like, I, <laughs> did she run away? I, I couldn't find anything about like how she reacted. I'm also so shocked that he was so bold and careless to just take her out there. I feel like that says a lot about him as a person. Like, he probably thought he was so above the law and untouchable. But Clyde did apparently threaten Candy. And he said, you know, if you tell anyone, I'm going to do the same thing to you. So by the time that police found Ellen Beeson's remains, it was like six or seven months later. And it was because police or it was because Candy didn't tell the police until then. They find their remains eventually, but by then they're basically just bones. They were in a really bad state of decomposition. And Ellen was wearing the same necklace she had worn the night that she disappeared. So Clyde gets interviewed by police and he changes his story from what he told Candy. So Clyde says that him and Ellen had gone skinny dipping that night after they went dancing in a nearby swimming hole and he said that at some point he just looked out and he saw her floating in the water. So he claimed she drowned, which is so weird because didn't he say she left with some friends in a truck? <laughs> he said he put her in his truck when he found her floating in the water and he started driving to the hospital, but then he panicked because what if they pin this on him? So then he hid her body and he was given a $2,000 fine at this point and charged for abuse of a corpse. He served one year in county jail and then after that, he was a free man. So that is the abuse of a corpse charge Marla's mom's ex found in his history. Ellen Beeson's entire case is incredibly infuriating, but one of the biggest things for me was the medical examiner at this time in Galveston County said that her cause of death was unknown, which I think is a big reason why Clyde was never charged with her murder. But way later, like way later, in March 2012, Ellen Beeson's case was further investigated. Her body was exhumed and a forensic anthropologist looked at her remains. It was found that Ellen actually had a massive skull fracture that could have only been done through homicide. So they said the force needed to cause this fracture would have had to have been very powerful and there's no way this could have been accidental. So when her body is exhumed in 2012, they of course take photos and in these more recent photos, which they show in the docuseries, you can very clearly see this skull fracture. <laughs> However, in 1984, the medical examiner that photographed Ellen's skull at that time only took two photos of the skull and the skull fracture was not visible in either of the photos. Fishy. Just very sketchy. We'll, we'll talk more about that later, but remember that. So police brought Clyde in for questioning. <laughs> and this is incredible. I am going to read you some of the transcript. I'm going to try my best to do some different voices. So we have the detective and we have Clyde. Okay. So we're starting with the detective. Detective says, let's start with Ellen Beeson. And Clyde says, Who's that? Detective says, When we were driving over, I said, When's the last time you carried a body around? You said I never did that. That's her. Clyde says, Oh, that's her? Detective, 
Back in 1985, when this happened, the medical office didn't have certain equipment that they have today. So we exhumed her body. That means we dug it up. <laughs> and she had a massive skull fracture. And I don't mean a little hairline crack. We're talking a massive skull fracture that would absolutely cause death. Clyde says, I don't see how that's possible. The detective says, well, it's possible. I'm not trying to see if she got a skull fracture. I'm trying to see how she got the skull fracture. Clyde says, the only way I could possibly think of that, that maybe that's what, when she went swimming and then she was not swimming, but there's nothing in there that, you know, I was in that water years. There's no way she dove in and hit her head. There's no way in hell that she had skull fractures. And guys, I can read. I, this is literally what he said. <laughs> so it just, it doesn't make any sense. So the detective says, a judge of your character is how you own up to your responsibilities when you make mistakes. And right now you're failing fucking miserably, Clyde. <laughs> and Clyde says, I could put my hands on a stack of Bibles and I know I've never ever hurt anybody as far as death wise. <laughs> so the detective then taps his hand on top of the photos of Ellen Beeson's remains and says, definitive, that happened. And Clyde says, complete puzzle to me. <laughs> so based on this new evidence, Clyde was arrested and his mugshot is absolutely incredible. He looks like a shitstorm. He had some type of cancer in his jaw and he's like missing part of his jaw. All of his teeth have fallen out. He has this awful bleached mullet and also his eyes are kind of like glazed over and like half shut. He just, he looks terrible. And Clyde, when he was arrested, was quoted in the media saying, They're trying to pin me for the Killing Fields murders. I didn't kill her. I didn't even know her. <laughs> Which is interesting, because during his time in jail, he allegedly bragged to several inmates about how he murdered four or five women. And he included the name of Laura Miller. So this gets put in some court reports and included in these court reports Clyde also said he had sex with Laura before he killed her. So Tim Miller finds out about all of this because of the tireless research that he had been doing. And he had suspected Clyde for a while. He was like the first guy that he thought might have done it. And then when everything happened with Robert Abel, he kind of switched his efforts to him. And then he went back to Clyde and suspected him after, um, Abel committed suicide and, you know, he had apologized to him and all that stuff. But Texas law stated that a person couldn't be convicted based on the basis of jailhouse informants and that the defendant's involvement has to be corroborated. So even though he allegedly bragged to these inmates in jail about all of this disgusting stuff, they can't use it for charging. And Tim actually talked with one of the jailhouse informants later about this and he also filed a wrongful death suit against Clyde and in March on the 25th in the year of 2014 Clyde goes to trial for the murder of Ellen Beeson Tim Miller was there as well as some of Heidi Fye's family and during the trial the prosecutor actually cross-examines the medical examiner back from 1984. So the prosecutor argued to the jury that the medical examiner, in an attempt to protect their reputation, hid or destroyed evidence from the state. This also reminded Heidi Fye's family of issues they had with this same medical examiner. The medical examiner did not preserve Heidi's clothing. They didn't preserve her fingernails. And they didn't preserve evidence that could potentially contain DNA. The blue Western shirt that was also found near Laura's body was also lost. 
Marla was also called in as a witness for the sentencing phase of Clyde Hedrick's trial. And Marla opens up about what we talked about earlier, you know, him spying on her, exposing himself to her. But she also talked about how there were times that Clyde would make her a glass of Kool-Aid and she would suddenly get really sleepy and she would fall asleep and feel someone touching her. And she talked about how it was very hard to wake up. And one morning when this happened, Marla woke up and she had to go straight to the bathroom she said she was sore in places she shouldn't have been. <sighs> Marla's testimony was very strong and very difficult to listen to. And Clyde ends up being charged with a maximum sentence of 20 years for manslaughter. Marla in the documentary, Very Tearful, is quoted saying, Somebody finally listened. Tim Miller actually ended up meeting Marla at the trial, and they later talked about Laura Miller, and Marla confirmed Clyde knew her and that they lived on the same street. Marla also noticed the similarities between Laura, like her age and her personality, and how Marla was in her childhood. And one day, Tim asked Marla, if she would go to the killing fields with him. And she agreed. Tim wanted to see if Marla had ever been there before. So Marla went out there and at first it doesn't really look familiar to her, but when she hits the tree line, these memories rushed back to her. And she remembers a time when she was about 12 or 13 when Clyde had taken her there which would have been in the early 90s. Marla recalled Clyde had to do a mowing job on his friend's property on Calder Road that day. And Marla also remembers seeing Clyde digging in that same area. In October of 2021, after only serving eight years in prison, was released. He was 67 years old. He was released due to a mandatory release law, and he was placed on mandatory supervision. Clyde was never charged with any of the Texas Killing Fields murders due to lack of evidence. So the Killing Fields murders remain open and continue to be investigated. The FBI urges that if you have any information to contact them. On July 11th, 2022, Tim Miller was awarded more than $24 million in a default judgment for his wrongful death lawsuit against Clyde Hedrick. By January of 2019, forensic genealogy was used to try to identify Jane and Janet Doe. This would be 33 years after Jane Doe's body had been discovered and 28 years after Janet Doe's body had been discovered. And on April 15th, Janet Doe was identified as a 34-year-old woman named Donna Prudhomme. The very next day, April 16th, Jane Doe was identified as 30-year-old Audrey Lee Cook. These women, for 30 years, were nameless and assumed to be transient people. And the opposite was true. Donna Gonsolin Prudhomme had moved to Houston for work. Audrey Lee Cook was a mechanic and her family had been looking for her for a very long time. Now, what's interesting is in 2013, a man named Mark Roland Stallings, a convicted kidnapper serving a life sentence, confessed to killing a girl in 1991 and later dumping her body in the killing fields. At the time of the murder, Stallings was living and working in League City. He was near the homes of some of the girls who went missing and were later found dead as well. Despite the fact that his testimony showed great consistency with the details, he was never charged. 
he remains a suspect in the murders of Donna Perdome and Audrey Cook, as well as two unrelated murders in Fort Bend County. In the docuseries, they talk about how it's very rare for there to be more than one killing, uh, more than one serial killer operating in the same area. But I mean, if Mark Stallings is telling the truth, and I mean, he was convicted of kidnapping, there very well could have been. Tim Miller ended up founding his own nonprofit known as Texas EcuSearch after his daughter's death to help locate missing persons. And I, I love this so much. EquiSearch has assisted in thousands of cases throughout the United States and abroad in 42 states and 11 different countries, giving some form of resolution to distraught families and closure to many criminal cases. When I looked at their website, it said they had assisted in over 2,200 cases. They also helped in locating 760 survivors and deceased victims. They never charge a family or law enforcement for their services. He was quoted saying, I had a lot of plans and I had a lot of goals in life. I only know God had different plans for Tim Miller. I'm not going to say I like them. I'm not going to say I still like them today. You can donate to the Texas EquiSearch Foundation on their website, which is texasequisearch.org. That's T-E-X-A-S-E-Q-U-U search.org. And I will also put it in the show notes. You can also, when you go to this website, it will give you a link to take you to a place where you can write to the parole board to request that Clyde Edwin Hedrick not be released from supervision and GPS monitoring. So don't forget that link will be in the description. And that is the story of the Texas Killing Fields. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, share the link with some of your friends. And please be sure to leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. Follow the podcast so you know when new episodes have been released. Be sure to tune in next week for part three. If you have requests for future stories or you want to share a crazy story with me, don't forget you can email me perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail. Follow me on Instagram for the latest perplexity updates at perplexity mystery podcast. And thank you guys so, 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 so much for listening. I will talk to you guys next week.